Hello, Kubernetes community, and welcome back to the Pod CTL podcast. We are going to try and get back on track here again. I know we've been uh, a little bit scattered on when we were publishing the show and missed a week or so. Um, you know, Tyler, you and I have been traveling quite a bit and we're getting kind of into hectic season with uh, with events and, and different things. So um, good to have you back. Good to have you back on the show. But uh, apologies to our guests or apologies to our, our listeners for being a little bit erratic the last few weeks. Yeah, it's, and we're, we're, we're rolling full into conference, conference, conference season. Yeah. So anyways, well, listen, uh, this week is KubeCon. Uh, KubeCon is over in Copenhagen this week, and we're very, very lucky. Uh, we've got not only a pretty exciting announcement, but a great guest. So excited to have Brandon Phillips, uh, who was CTO at CoreOS and uh, is now a member of the technical staff at Red Hat after the, the Red Hat acquisition. So Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, both. Um, so you are you're over in Copenhagen this week. Um, before we dive into stuff, um, what's the uh, what's the the vibe over there? I know it's still early in the week, but what's the vibe uh, about KubeCon this week? Um, so so went over to the lobby and and it's all the familiar faces from all the different companies. We got um, we got everyone who's been in the ecosystem for the last four years. It seems like uh, here in Copenhagen, so it's been good. Yeah. Um, so you just uh, you just kind of are coming back from from uh, paternity leave after the acquisition around the same time you had your first child. Um, how how is the acquisition going so far in, in terms of getting back into a regular routine and back into engineering and stuff? Overall, great. So the the Red Hat team and the Coros team had been working together on stuff uh, in the open source community quite a bit, and so the last couple of months have been really just getting the teams integrated and getting. Um, roadmaps together, and so it's been pretty, been pretty smooth. Looking at um, what we're what we're doing in the short term and and where we're going here over the over the rest of the year. So, um, you know, back in uh, I think it was maybe the very first KubeCon uh, in Seattle, you made a presentation on this this new concept called operators, and you kind of introduced this this idea that we we're going to take human knowledge and and put it you know turn it into software and then you know use that to reliably manage applications so it's kind of this idea that you know let kubernetes manage what was going on in kubernetes um how you know when you when you come up with something new and and a big idea it it evolves how's it evolved in your mind over the last i don't know 18 months or so yeah i think one of the things that's happened is people have started to understand the idea that kubernetes is really something that can be extended um, and this analogy that I think people are sort of gravitating to is imagine if you had a public cloud provider that allowed you to add your own application to their catalog of applications. So today they give you a preset set of databases that they'll run on your behalf. Um, but sort of the idea with the operators now has evolved to, well, really, Kubernetes lets you plug in your own database or your own application. Maybe your app that your business relies on needs to be operated like a public cloud service is. You have to worry about upgrades and its uptimes and its scale. And so um, that's, that's been kind of the, the evolution over time is, is not just focusing on things that are hard to run, but thinking about operators as these kind of kube native apps where anyone can kind of program a service that's API driven for deployment and, and management. Um, and it's built on top of Kubernetes and kind of available across the hybrid cloud space, uh, data centers, public cloud, et cetera. So that's, that's been kind of the evolution, um, but the core concepts have remained the same of uh, Kubernetes native API for managing a service 
um, and then some software that integrates directly with Kubernetes to make that possible. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I saw we uh, last week we saw the announcement of the Vault operator, uh, and and <clears throat> if you as you you know read into it, and, and there'll be links in the show notes, you know, about all this stuff uh, to check out. It is really cool to think about that piece of it. You know, we very often think about the you know the the initial hey I spun up a thing, but that whole operational life cycle of let's say that thing which which seems to be pretty popular on Kube lately, seeing a lot of databases. Uh, and 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 you know persistent stores like well how are you backing that up and snapshotting it and you know recovering it all those types of things so seeing that basically codified into the operators is pretty pretty impressive to look at uh, to look at now now basically what it's we're kind of taking it to the next step here so so what's being announced at uh, at KubeCon with the uh, with the framework yeah so the we we essentially built um, as at, at CoreOS. Um, a, a handful of operators. We built an operator for a monitoring system for Metheus. We built an operator for a database at CD. And then we built this operator for a secret store. You can think of sort of IAM, um, HashiCorp Vault, is, is if you're familiar with the open source project. Um, and so we, we kind of experimented with, you know, stateless and memory app systems and monitoring systems and, and trying to see what some of the basic patterns are um, for kind of building these kube native apps. And so the operator framework is really some of the lessons learned, um, the hard lessons learned over the last two years in building out um, the first set of operators and um, also what it means to manage a set of operators. So there's actually building the operator and, and making the service work, um, but then you have to lifecycle manage that. Imagine how do I enable that service, make it available to my Kubernetes cluster? How do I disable it for certain uh, users? How do I upgrade that that piece of software and get the latest copy of it from the person who built it? Um, and so there's kind of these two things that we've been trying to figure out how to deliver, which is how do we make it possible for people to build more of these operators? That's that's the operator SDK in our framework. And then the other piece is how do we make it easy for people to consume these things, um, which is what we call the operator lifecycle manager. Um, and so these are the two things that we're initially announcing uh, inside of the operator framework. But there's a bunch of other things that we've been excited about and we'll be releasing over time, um, including some stuff around uh, metering. So, um, you know, if, if we go back to that analogy of public cloud, it's not just enough to make a service available to somebody so that they can consume it. Um, it's not just enough to like build the service, but you also need to know how much people are consuming um, because you know those services are taking up resources. So you want to be able to actually meter and say it consumed four gigabytes of RAM and twenty percent of a CPU for five hours to run the service, um, and that's that's kind of the next pillar uh, that we're tackling. But we're doing all this as as part of the Kubernetes ecosystem and as open source software. And so these kind of two initial pillars of the SDK and the, the lifecycle manager are the things that we're announcing uh, today. Very yeah, cool. I think the the lifecycle one, lifecycle management piece, really like stuck out to me uh, looking at these pieces because you know if you've been in um, you know any of these types of uh, application deployment technologies, we'll we'll, we'll say um, this it's a lot of it is focused on the initial deploy and then also. 
you know, when you pass that off in a self-service environment, what happens after that's usually a problem. So, you know, I think like things like OpenStack Heat or even some of the virtual, you know, VMware virtualization tools, like, oh, look, your, your users can go in here and click a button and get a database. Like, all right, cool. Now I have 10,000 of them. Like, what do I do with them? Like, oh, no, they're just they're After that, they're just kind of floating in the air as 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 apps, not like, well, I, how do I upgrade them and manage them? And, and so when I saw kind of how that was laid out, that was, I thought, a, a really big advancement here. For sure. It's like, um, as somebody who's administrating these systems, you need to know uh, who's running it, how long has it been running, what version is running, has it been updated recently, how much is it costing me to run those things? Um, and there's just so many questions that you need to answer. And uh, they're not glamorous uh, pieces of technology to build, but it, these are important questions to answer for any infrastructure owner, and particularly anybody who's running, you know, potentially tens or hundreds of machines, um, you, you need to be able to be accountable to what's actually running on the system. And that, that's what the lifecycle management is all about. Yeah. <clears throat> I know one of the questions, so, you know, we, we've had a chance to, uh, to to talk to some, you know, early customers or, you know, early prospective people about, about operators or sort of before the announcement. And I, I know one of the questions that comes up a lot is people will say, um, okay, well, this seems like a, a, a set of tools or framework to to deploy, you know, say stateful applications or complex applications. Um, but we already have some tools like that. Like we have some config management tools or an automation tool. Like can you give folks a sense of maybe how this is different than, you know, a Terraform or an Ansible or something else? Or, you know, what, what does it do to sort of take it beyond maybe what people have done in the past? Yeah. So I, I would say that in some ways there's not a whole lot that's different from um, an Ansible. And in fact, you're starting to see people kind of build these control loops, uh, these operators in, in Ansible as well. Um, and, and really the the two things that make them unique is one, um, being driven through an API. So a lot of these systems in the past, you have an inventory of machines and you are deploying an app to that inventory. So, um, and then you might have one or two different environments. Um, and so it feels very much like I'm making, I'm going in and I'm making some changes to some machines. Um, whereas this is more abstracted away, um, like a cloud services. So you have a generic API or you have an API, a specific API that says, this is a, this is an API that creates a new database, or this is an API that creates a new, um, application server. And then you use that exact same API to configure it as well and issue credentials. And that that's kind of the big shift here is it's not thinking about I'm doing something to a bunch of machines, but I need an instance of this service available, um, whether it's to my application or I'm going to get that instance of the service and make it available to somebody else. Um, and that's kind of the shift in thinking and it's um, an API-driven way of doing that. Okay. And then the other piece is just making it Kubernetes native. Um, a lot of the systems in the past, I know Ansible starting to um, introduce a lot of things to manage Kubernetes resources, um, but it is something where we see an opportunity where Kubernetes can run across public cloud on your laptop in your data center. Um, and I think it's a really powerful thing for people building software that they need to run inside of organizations or building software for themselves to enable their development teams that you have the 
guarantee that this API is going to be available in a lot of different places. In the past, you've always had this um, trouble of, oh, I may target the public cloud to spin up this database, but shoot, what if somebody wants to do offline um, development on their laptop uh, in some workshop? Uh, now I have to like, retool on top of Vagrant or something. Um, and so having that Kubernetes API makes it much, I would say, much more um, consumable across a lot of different footprints. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And especially if you, if you think about it from the perspective of a, of an ISV, somebody who, you know, makes software, they you know, database vendor, for example, and they, they would love to have their software deployed everywhere, but, but they don't want to have to think about, okay, here's a, uh, it, it's different for this cloud. It's different for that cloud. It's different for this environment. And, and this is going to start allowing them to have one consistent model kind of regardless of, of where somebody wants to deploy their piece of software or their, you know, their type of service. Yeah, and it's a huge opportunity with Kubernetes kind of hitting its stride, I would say, even in the last year. Um, it's gotten so many proof points through net new logos and um, validation from all the public clouds and um, all these enterprise um, vendors essentially starting to standardize on it. Um, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty good time to start to think about, well, how do we lower the barrier to entry and, and make it possible for non-experts um, right. to get in and, and start and start developing against this API. That's pretty, it's, it's, um, I think it's going to be a, uh, you know, a big, a big step. And like you said, as far as hitting stride, I think this is, you know, sort of also evidence of, from the standpoint of, you know, the, the questions are evolving, right? So even when we talk to whether it's customers or people in the community, the things they're thinking about and, and questions and stuff they're trying to fix are, uh, more mature, I would say, at this point, right? Where, you know, whereas I feel like sometimes with some other places, you're, you're, everyone's still talking about the how do I install it? How do I install it? How do I install it? Where this is like, well, what do we do this? How do we build out our applications so that they'll, you know, be able to, you know, manage through their life cycle and stuff? So I think it's a, it's a really good sign. Um, hey, so let me, let me ask you this question. So, um, one of the things that, that's, that's going to be coming along, obviously, is, uh, you know, the, the, the operators are going to help in terms of, of getting applications deployed, lifecycle managed. Um, and then a lot of times you hear from, from different companies where they'll say, well, you know, we, we have to go through these testing cycles of validating, uh, you know, kind of software with infrastructure compatibility. Um, how are you here? I mean, we, we have, you guys have some experience with like the Prometheus operator and so forth. Like, how do people manage through the velocity at which Kubernetes is coming out to, typically kind of how frequently you have to update your operator is it do we expect people to update it quarterly or does it just totally depend on the application that the operator is using what's the i don't know what, what are some of the lessons we've learned so far yeah for sure i think one of the things that we're trying to tackle with the lifecycle management is making it possible for people to not just find the latest tip of the application the latest bleeding edge release because um, we have noticed this like um, I, I don't think it's reasonable for every single person who's consuming, say, Prometheus or um, etcd or Vault to be consuming the very, very latest code. Um, at CoreOS, we always had you know, the concept of alpha-beta stable or a few minor releases of our software where we would um, make kind of a catalog of versions available um, to people with some like reasonable timeline. You couldn't stay on something uh, forever, but... Um, that, that's one of the things that we're trying to make available in the lifecycle management is, hey, here's a copy of the Prometheus operator. Um, and these are the versions of the Prometheus operator that are available for you to deploy. 
into your namespace in Kubernetes so that you can validate it alongside with your application. And you can stay on that version um, of Prometheus Operator uh, until such time that you need to upgrade it or maybe there's a security issue. And so we're really starting to play around with this idea of, yes, we want to make sure that kind of a hermetically sealed, known working um, set of software gets installed into your namespace. And that, that stuff can all work together until such time that your engineering team decides to upgrade it to the next step. Um, and that's that's why this lifecycle management piece is pretty critical because you can't just go around and say like, yeah, deploy this YAML that you found on GitHub <laughs> to your right. Kubernetes cluster. Um, it gets pretty unwieldy pretty quickly. And so you really rapidly get into the spot where you have catalogs, you have channels, um, and you have applications and you install not an application for the entire cluster, but an application, an operator per namespace um, so that that API and that, that behavior of the application is known when when inserted into uh, the application's namespace. You know, this week obviously we're, up, we're we're announcing this at uh, at KubeCon. Um, you know, CoreOS has been driving this, but you know, we, we've started to see um, some other uh, instances of software uh, that get put out there. So I know Couchbase, um, you know, had a, a nice blog write up about this. Like, what have you been hearing from the broader open source ecosystem about you know? Um, thinking about adopting this, or you know, do we expect to see a bunch of other uh, you know examples of this start to pop out? Um, you know, after this week when the, the sort of formal framework announcement is is put out there. Yeah, I think you've already seen a ton. Um, we we actually inside the operator framework have a Git repo called Awesome Operators, where we're starting to essentially track the ecosystem of people who are building operators four different pieces of software. So, I mean, you have stuff like TensorFlow, there's the TF operator that has come out, people building things for different databases like Postgres, Elasticsearch, storage systems like Rook, essentially up and down the stack anywhere that you can imagine there being infrastructure software, uh, people are starting to do this. And I think it's telling that before we, we are introducing the operator framework and um, introducing the SDK, that a lot of it has been very infrastructure-focused. Essentially, people who already are experts in infrastructure software and distributed systems um, kind of scratching their own itch and building these operators. And our hope is to kind of lower the bar and lower the barriers to entry so that we start to see um, applications uh, that aren't built and designed by infrastructure engineers uh, start to have operators as well. Um, so that's kind of the state of the ecosystem. Also, we've been working alongside um, some engineers from Google and, and others and introduced a proposal for what we're calling um, SIG platform dev in the Kubernetes community. Um, there's a couple other projects that are starting to tackle and, and think about similar ideas. Um, Kube Builder, uh, which was built by Philip uh, Whitrock at Google, and the SDK and the operator SDK all kind of circling around this idea of, of how do we onboard more and more apps? How do we get the flywheel going in a similar way that Linux had, you know, almost 15 years ago now of all these, this pent up demand around, uh, around Unix based systems. How do we get this pent up demand that's been building around distributed systems and, and portable hybrid cloud infrastructure? How do we get that flywheel of applications going and landing on Kube? 
and that's that's really the focus and we're starting to see glimmers of that uh, but i hope to be able to say a year from now uh, we have like 300 operators not just uh, 20 or 30 available for users to consume very cool yeah i think um you know it's, it's always this uh catch 22 right where if there's well we don't use them because there aren't enough of them and then people well we're not making them because there's not enough people using them so i think uh, getting that first initial jump start uh is, is really important yeah yeah yeah, I, I I did a uh, I did a podcast with with the new stack last week, and they were sort of saying, "Hey, you know, what are you looking forward to at KubeCon?" And I had to kind of bite my tongue because I knew we were going to make this announcement this week, but it wasn't, you know, their, their show was going to come out ahead of time. And I I, I got a feeling that um, you know at Austin, the Austin one, uh, you know, Istio and, and Service Mesh was kind of the big thing. I, I think people are gonna are gonna recognize this, and and like you said, Tyler, you know, kind of timing is everything, and sometimes maturity is everything. But I think. Brandon hit the nail on the head when he said, you know, when you when you unlock a, a piece of technology that's going to allow a whole new set of, of applications to get on a on a consistent platform, that's a that's a really big milestone. So I will I will not be surprised at all if the big you know takeaway from from uh, from this KubeCon is is around operators and, and and we see just a flood of ISVs start saying, okay, that's going to be the most consistent way to get my software to become as a service on top of Kubernetes. And so, like you said, hopefully it's three hundred or four hundred or five hundred come uh, the next KubeCon. Well, cool. Well, listen, uh, Brandon, with that, I know it's, it's late over in Copenhagen. Thank you so much for the time tonight. Um, good luck with, with all of the announcements this week, and uh, we, will, we will hopefully see you at, at Red Hat Summit. Uh, Tyler, any last thoughts about uh, all the stuff that, that we just talked about? No, I, I think we, we, we pretty much pretty much covered it as far as the uh, kind of excitement I think we're going to see build around this. And this is, this is I think, um, the next logical step that we're going to start to see, especially after the service catalog, uh, right? So all the service catalog and, and service broker framework started to show up. Be like, cool, there's a catalog. We put stuff in it, and then it's like, well, how do we manage the stuff that's in it? And I think this is that that this that this is that missing link. Yep. Yeah. Well, listen, folks, with that, um, there are a ton of uh, links in the show notes if you want to dig more into operators. And, and we, we highly suggest that you do, especially if you're responsible for, for managing Kubernetes platforms or for managing applications. So with that, for Tyler and for Brandon, we're going to thank you for listening this week. And we'll talk to you next week. 